0: Hi, I'm Mary C. Curtis and this is Equal
1: Time. We the jury in the above-entitled matter as to count one, unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. Same caption, verdict count two. We the jury in the above-entitled matter as to count two, third-degree murder, perpetrating an eminently dangerous act, find the defendant guilty. Same caption, verdict count three. We the jury in the above-entitled matter as to count three, second-degree manslaughter, culpable negligence, creating an unreasonable risk, find the defendant guilty.
0: Guilty on all charges. That was the verdict of a Minnesota jury in the murder and manslaughter trial of former police officer Derek Chauvin in the killing of George Floyd. There was relief across the world, in part because this kind of accountability was so rare and questions because despite what the prosecution insisted in its closing argument, it was about more than one police officer, one bad apple. The trial, the verdict, the murder of George Floyd We're all about systemic racism and the relationship between law enforcement and the communities they are supposed to protect and serve, particularly communities of color. Are they guardians or warriors? It's been 30 years since Rodney King was beaten by Los Angeles police officers. Since then, the list has grown. Tamir Rice, Breonna Taylor, Dante Wright, to Micaiah Bryant, shot hours before Chauvin was pronounced guilty, and Andrew Brown Jr., a father of 10 shot and killed in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, less than 24 hours after. Activist and podcast host DeRay McKesson has long been focused on issues of equity and justice and innovation. The Baltimore Raised McKesson is co-founder of Campaign Zero, a nonprofit aimed at ending police violence. He says organizing is the key to challenging the power of the police and changing the system for the better. But how and what comes after the trial? Welcome to Equal Time, Dure. Just get right to it. Now, of course, we're talking about all the events of this week with the Chauvin trial and the verdict. And some activists are worried because they feel that the guilty verdict will kind of let police off the hook in a way. And it will slow progress for the issue of police reform, that people will say the system worked, justice was served. So what was your reaction to the verdict,
1: yeah. You know, in some ways, it's like deja vu. We've been here before. You've been here before. We've waited for verdicts uh, in the Walter Scott case, Mike Brown. Like we, we've waited to see if there were going to be charges, even right. So we've been at this moment where people are like, "This is going to be the watershed. This will change everything." And that rarely happens. Uh, I'm not worried. I'm worried about a lot of things. I'm not necessarily worried that people understand this particular case to be victory, I'm worried that people think of this whole sort of moment as victory, right, from last summer to now. That when we look at the data, the police killed more people in 2020 than every year but 2018. When we look at 2021, the police have killed 320 people as of today. So... You know, every way that we measure what will be progress, it's actually not, the numbers are flat, right? The numbers are very consistent. So that is actually what worries me. And as somebody who spends a lot of time in conversations with legislators, uh, the police have never been more organized. When people, like we are winning the PR war for sure, but the police are very organized even if it's quiet.
0: Yeah. You're talking about unions, all of that?
1: Yeah, unions... uh, the police chiefs are making sure that their power is not weaker. The police are very good fear mongers. So you think about all those states that are criminalizing protests, that doesn't happen without the police supporting it. You think about, uh, you know, we 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 led a use of force policy changes all across the country uh, with a campaign called A Can't Wait. That was really powerful. But po- the police fought us tooth and nail on things like chokehold bans. You know, they fought us about not being able to shoot into moving vehicles. Like, the police were very amped. Even uh, no-knock raids, you know, we're still fighting people about no-knock raids. The best bill banning no-knocks in the United States is, um, is Maryland. They, they just passed that. So, like, you know, we got a lot, a lot, a lot to go. Uh, and I worry that people think that, like, oh, you know, we're just, like, steamrolling the police. It's like, no, the police are, they are organized and they are ready.
0: Yeah, I want to ask. You brought up the Maryland bill. So some states all over the country have been enacting some police reform and legislation, particularly since the killing of George Floyd. And in our home state of Maryland, we saw the legislature, uh, the overrode Governor Larry Hogan's veto. And they did away with that law enforcement officer's bill of rights. And they adopted legislation to get citizens more involved. Do you know what impact uh, that has had? Do you see this as progress?
1: Yeah, so we were, um, we were really involved with the Maryland bill. I think that the Maryland bill is, a real, is, is really strong. Uh, it's the best no-knock bill in the country. Uh, the, way that, the way that discipline was rewritten is, uh, is a model for giving citizens actual power and not just symbolic power. Uh, it's not a very strong um, use of force bill. So you know, hopefully next session, they tighten that up. Uh, New Jersey has the best use of force bill that we have in the country right now. And that really is a model.
0: Have you looked at uh, some of the reforms in states like Illinois? They they have they're rewriting some issues on policing, uh, mandating that officers wear body cameras, and even New York City is kind of making it a little easier to sue. Uh, are, are you involved in those?
1: The actual text of the Illinois bill not all that strong, so we're hoping that the next uh, the next they they have some bills that are coming up. Hopefully, those are a little stronger. So in Illinois, for instance, they banned chokeholds but didn't ban. Um, Strangleholds, right? So all neck restraints are banned. So banning one doesn't really mean anything because the police will just say they use the other one. Um, and in New York, there are the bill, the best bills in New York have not been voted on yet.
0: Now, you mentioned that Florida bill, and uh, we see that that bill is so wide range. You get pretty much Uh, Criminalizes protest, and uh, and other states are are Indiana. They're looking to pass these bills. Oklahoma, even some about uh, you know people are immune if they hit protesters, strike them with their cars. Now, part of your strategy of you and your organization and the tactics to enact change has been about protest and making more voices heard. Um, So now that these laws are being pushed, and you know. Firsthand from your experiences, how easily they can ensnare someone in the criminal justice system? How will it affect your work? What will you do?
1: Yeah, hopefully uh, these will be deemed unconstitutional. Like I, I anticipate that there are a set of lawyers gearing up for the first time somebody's charged with this stuff, and then they will fight tooth and nail in court. Uh, so that's what I think will actually happen. I think that this the the goal of this is to have a chilling effect. I think that the legislators know. This will be hard to stand uh, up against people's right to assemble. Uh, but I think that they want, they they also know that like, you know, you have to get a lawyer. You have to go through the process. I was involved in a legal case for four years. I went to the Supreme Court and, you know, luckily I had pro bono lawyers, but it, it was long. I would not have been able to afford the fees. You know, it is, that's actually like a hard process.
0: And some of these states are saying they're gonna take away people's college loans and things like that. So it is really to penalize them. By the way, how is is that case dismissed now? Are you in the clear?
1: No, not all the way done. Uh there is a um this I wanted the Supreme Court, but they sent it to the Louisiana State Supreme Court. And that is what uh they have to rule on on this idea of like, did I violate Louisiana state law? So that's where we are.
0: Yeah. And for folks uh listeners at the equal time that don't kind of know about it, uh, you were at the a protest and someone said someone was violent and they charged you, right? That's how it worked yeah, so in Baton Rouge, yeah.
1: An officer got hit with a rock. Yeah. And, uh, and then I was, I, I got, he said, I did, like I was the cause of it. Yeah. So it spent four, four and a half years uh, in litigation. It was, it was really wild to, to have to, have to sit through that for so long i mean we went through the court of appeal we went through the fifth circuit um four times and finally made to supreme i mean it was sort of wow the most interesting thing this is sort of an aside is that you don't get a heads up about the supreme court until like i found out that the supreme court ruled in my favor on twitter like literally a a (laughs) reporter tweeted me like deray won did it and i was like what so that was that was what I anticipated.
0: At least it went the way you would like to. Now, the federal government—we see they've gotten involved in the past in some of these police brutality cases, uh, whether it was after the beating of Rodney King in L.A. or when they went and looked in Ferguson after Michael Brown. So, has anything changed as far as the federal government getting involved?
1: No. So you know the pattern. Of, so they're doing a pattern and practice investigation in Minneapolis. So remember that they only yes. do. Uh, uh, the federal government historically does about three of these a year. So, you know, there are 18,000 police departments, three is low. Uh, and the George Floyd bill is, is there are a lot of good things in it. Uh, but remember that the George Floyd bill does not, uh, the George Floyd Act does not apply to the federal government. So, you know, tomorrow Biden could rein in the federal agencies, border patrols, 20,000 police officers, ATF, DEA, ICE, like he doesn't need a task force or commission to do that. Like they can actually just do that right now. Um, and remember, too, no-knock warrants is really not the fight. So you don't need a no-knock warrant to do a no-knock raid. The George Floyd bill only uh, targets no-knock warrants. You can get a straight-up regular warrant and break into somebody's house. Remember that with Breonna Taylor. They technically did have a no-knock warrant, but they said they ox- they executed it in what's called a knock-and-announce fashion, like a basic search warrant. So uh, it's questionable that, that will have any real impact. That it will just be symbolic. So, um, So I am you know, cautiously optimistic about the federal government. But I'm reminded that all the things that really matter in policing are local. Like everything that you really care about in policing is a local issue. It's your, ma- You should be stressing out your mayor, your governor, your city council, your state legislators. Uh, and remember that we are in unprecedented times that the Black people are actually more afraid of being killed by the police than being killed by, uh, than being victims of community violence now, which is sort of not what people anticipated, right? That like the fear of the police is actually pretty legitimate Across a uh, community,
0: yeah. So you'd think that this whole uh, move by the Biden administration to rescind that ban on uh, the Trump era ban on consent decrees. You're saying that that will have limited impact.
1: Yeah, it'll, it's a good thing. Uh, yeah, but you know what would be a bigger deal would be to expand the number of consent decrees, right? Yeah, uh, and and to potentially have a trigger. So you know, what if the Ten police departments that killed the most people every year automatically got investigated, right? Like, what if there was something? Because the challenge with the DOJ strategy, not even just now, but in general, has always been that they do investigations where the media is, right? So, like George Floyd, big big case, da da da. It goes there. That doesn't mean that that department is the most egregious, right? It doesn't mean that that department has the most problems. That's just where the the media is, and that just I, it makes you know why that strategy works for them. That might not be the best strategy, though, for community, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. So you talked a little bit about the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which is still stalled in the Senate. So even though it's passed the House and some of its provisions, you know, particularly the one about collecting records and data so bad officers can't jump to other departments and reining in qualified immunity. uh, Is that part of a solution, do you think, Uh, even though you're saying it's really more local?
1: Yeah, I think it can be part of it. Remember that the database is not binding, right? So they can they can check it, but they don't have to not sort of hire people. Uh, but the presence of a database is, is is better than no database. So that is real. Uh, and qualified immunity, the end of qualified immunity will be big for civil cases. You know, I think a lot of people misunderstand, don't re- realize that qualified immunity is a civil process, not a, mm-hmm. a criminal process. So people, you know, I just read an article this morning that was like, you know, qualified immunity stopping police officers from prosecution. And you're like, that is, prosecution is a criminal term. Uh, this, mm-hmm. what qualified immunity does is make it harder for you to sue the police department because of police officers' action. So this is civil process and that is a that is a good thing. And yeah. uh, the end of it will be a good thing. But, you know, I, it is sort of odd that qualified immunity has become like the deal breaker for people because it won't, the, even the people who study qualified immunity all day know that this is not going to be like the biggest game changer. What will be? Uh, no one thing, but accountability will be big, right? So like making it easier, like breaking the power of police unions would actually be a pretty big deal. Um, moving money and from policing and investing in other places would matter a lot. Uh, and then doing some real decarceration work, right? So like uh, ending low-level arrests, decriminalizing, those sort of things actually matter a lot.
0: Yeah. Now you you just mentioned about moving some money and that there've been calls over the last year to defund the police. And there are a lot of, uh, you know, different ideas of what that definition is, but, you know, transforming how police work is done, shifting resources to have like social workers handle mental health cases. Um, Can you talk a little bit more about that and about also some of the worries that people have that, wow, if you restrain them and change them, then it will Make communities less safe.
1: Yeah, so I think that uh, you know when I think about what it means to move money, I'm always interested in permanent cuts. So, what would it look like to in civil asset forfeiture? So, so police departments cannot uh, take your assets and just like keep them forever, right? Uh, and that's a revenue source for a lot of police departments. Uh, you know, I'm not convinced that one-time budget cuts really will have a, a big impact, right? Because all you just wait for the next budget, and then you know we're back to where we were, or, you know, all, all it takes is one crisis and then the police will get a hundred more million dollars, right? So like, how do we have uh, a sustained budget cut over time that actually invests in alternatives and doesn't just set us up to reinvest in uh, the police over and over? So, I, you know, I'm interested to see what that'll look like. I also know that just moving the money and not decreasing the number of police also isn't a win, right? So if you if you just move the money and have the same number of officers with the same amount of power, you know, so yeah. this is a multi-pronged strategy. No one strategy alone is enough.
0: Since you're working with legislatures locally, are you also kind of going, because there's so much opposition to it?
1: We sort of deal with the weeds. We are, we do structural things only. So we've been talking to people in judiciary, trying to think through, like, what could they tweak? What, what could they tighten? Uh, what could the federal government do without legislation? Right, like the Biden could do a whole lot right now without legislation. So uh, we try to we try to make sure that we are everywhere uh, issues of policing are because here is the thing: is that there are a lot of people who focus on criminal justice, and those people, most of the people, do prisons and jails and arrests. That's like the main expertise. There is actually a small community of people uh, who do policing, so we are present in a lot of places uh, where. Issues of policing and structural things come to play.
0: Yeah. I have to ask you because, okay, there was the Chauvin verdict. Uh, and then, you know, you had the, um, right around this time, um, of course, the Micaiah Bryant, uh, the 15-year-old Black girl was was shot just a few hours before he was pronounced guilty. And then in North Carolina, within 24 hours after, you have Andrew Brown Jr., father of 10 who was shot and killed in Elizabeth City uh, in a car, moving car, apparently. They're still investigating it. I mean, when you see this going on, as you said earlier, it, it the numbers haven't changed. What are you thinking? Um, you know, do you get, you throw up your hands and say, oh, this is such a huge job. Is there some optimism? Just, I want to get your feelings on these things keep going on and on.
1: Yeah, I think I, you know, I don't even have a new way to say it. We've been here before. Uh, and if anything, I I double down on like the structural change that like when I, I wake up every day thinking about how how do I get to zero? That's what I'm chasing. How do we get to zero? So, you know, I know that the police have killed 320 people so far this year. So, you know, three names uh, in a very condensed period of time. Uh, but we track this every single day. So, you know, I'm never surprised by the numbers. But again, it's a conversation about like where are the places in the country where we can fight for the most aggressive changes how can we do it? Can we, who can we partner with? Uh, you know, uh, what, I, what I think a lot of people didn't realize and I didn't realize is that at the state level, you know, it's actually just not designed, it's an antiquated system. So Maryland, the legislature is only open for 90 days. That is hard, right? There's some states, uh, Nevada, Texas, where the legislature is only open every other year, right? So, So some of these things actually just like don't work in our favor, you know? And we, and that is a thing that we have to plan for. So what does it mean to be in a state where like, you know, you have to wait two years now before you can get anything on the statewide level. Like, that's sort of a wild uh, prognosis to to, to face. Uh, but again, like, I am so proud to be a part of a community of organizers who never get discouraged in this work, but just double down and try and figure out, like, what's the best lever?
0: Yeah. As a Black man, are you fearful?
1: I'm always mindful uh, that that the state has a lot of mechanisms to take my life. Like, I get it. Uh, but I try not to be too afraid because I know that part of the, the goal is to make us too afraid to live in our joy. And I just like, won't do that. So I'm mindful. Uh, you know, I've had a lot of encounters with the police more than most, uh, but I try not to let that get to me.
0: You said that Black people are more afraid of police than of community violence. I'm a Black person, so <laughs> I know what you mean, but uh, are there any way to quantify that? And was there of a shift where that happened?
1: Yep. So uh, the first study was done. Or the first poll was done by YouGov. There's a second poll done by another polling uh, firm, and they they tracked this over time. So it it this shift happened around the protests a couple years ago is when it just shifted to be people were more afraid of the police and community violence. Um, but yeah, so that's a poll. I didn't. Those numbers were not just uh, out of the air.
0: If someone were to ask you to paint a picture of where we are now in this situation, from where we were. I guess 30 years ago, exactly, when Rodney King happened and we thought that was some kind of inflection point, what would you say?
1: Yeah, I think, unfortunately, we're in the same place. Like, I think that in, in a lot of ways, the outcomes are the same. I think that the only different thing is that our ability to communicate with each other is radically different and our ability to have access to information is unbelievably different. So we can look at police union contracts all across the country with the with the swipe of a finger. We can... Uh, talk to organizers in all 50 states in two seconds. We can share information and organize in ways that just like the people before us couldn't do, not because they didn't have the energy, but because they didn't have the tools. So that is a different thing. Uh, But, you know, the country has been in these, you know, Rodney King was an inflection point about the police. There've been a lot of inflection points before. Uh, So I don't want to, you know, make this one out to be like the moment. I think that that actually like dampens our ability to fight when we think that like, this is the pivotal moment. I think that, if there's anything that we learn when we look at the fights around police violence across the country historically is that this is really local, that the federal government is not the biggest lever, uh, that this is actually a local uh, a local process.
0: Yeah, and DeRay, I, I have a question. I know I felt a certain frustration where now, because we do have the swipe of the finger and the videos uh, that people are attuned to it where Black folks have been witness and have been testifying to this for so long and people are always gaslighting you and saying, well, somebody must have done something or it couldn't have happened. And it took this. Uh, And a part of me is happy about that. But then a part of me says these videos of Black death, uh, it also is dehumanizing in so many ways and traumatizing. Um, So it's a mixed feeling about that. How do you you feel about that?
1: Yeah, I think that I, I, I agree with that. For some people, seeing is believing. For some people, they wouldn't. If you had told them that an officer... Uh, choked George Floyd for nine minutes, they would say it wasn't really nine minutes. You were exaggerating. Like some people seeing it was the thing that made them believe, right? But there is this thing about why with people of color and with uh, black people specifically and with poor people, why do you just see trauma over and over to believe that it is real, right? So that critique makes a lot of sense. Again, I just want to, I just, uh, videos, not videos, we have been here before. This is not a new moment and I, And I sort of push back around every framing of like the newness of this. It's not new. Uh, We've been here. Now, the question is, will our elected officials have the courage to stand up to police? Like, will people do the big things? Like, that's really the only thing that I sort of think about anymore. Like, I don't have a new speech in me. I don't have a cool phrase. I did all those things in 2014. I don't have a new Mm -hmm. rally. We did it. You know, in 2014, we were trying to convince people there's a problem. We convinced them. People, People generally are like, okay, something's wrong. The question becomes, what do you do about it? And I'm more and more uh, under the belief that, like, it will take mayors and governors and legislators, like, they are the people who have to do it. And, like, you know, I think some of it is we have to be those people. So we're not lobbying against a racist legislature in insert state here. We just are the people, right? Like, we are the legislators to say, like, you know what, we do this. And, you know, the way that most of the criminal justice packages work across the country is, like, people don't really revisit the issues so that you do policing. One year and then you come back in five years and do it again. Like it's not, we don't sort of chip away at the system every year. We should do that. Like every year, this should be the priority. We should be decarcerating every year. We should be reigning in the police every year. Uh, and that's sort of where I am. I I think that the glitz and glamour of the way people, especially the media, talks about the protests, the magazine covers, da da da. I think that actually hurts our work overall. I think that it gives people a false sense of progress. They think that everything changed. I think that's the story of twenty twenty. People are like, magical year, incredible. Da, da 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 da. The police killed more people, not less. That that's not a win.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and then does it trouble you when you talk about working with legislators that even in a case, that the line has moved so much, that even with a case as egregious as the Chauvin, where, uh, you know, even you have the Tim Scott saying, this is a terrible thing and justice was served, you still have a great portion of people taking up for him saying, oh, you know, this means police will not police. And uh, the, you know, that the jury was intimidated that even in this case, it, it, it's not clear cut to, to some people and some people with power who are legislators.
1: Yeah, we'll never have everybody, right? So like the goal isn't, you know, if we needed everybody, we'll never get any change. I think <laughs> that there are more people on our side uh, than not. And part of our work is organizers to create entrances so they know where to go. That if anything, that one of the things that is different in this moment is that there are a ton of people who want to do something, right? There are a ton of people who are like, tell me what to do. How do I fight my neighbor? How do I fight my community? That was actually the power of 8 can Wait. When we released all those use-of-force policies and told people how to read them, we actually didn't have to lobby any departments. They did it themselves. Like Citizens were like, this isn't right. You should change it. And you're like, that's exactly what this work should be. If we build a system where you have to call me to do good work, we'll lose. Like that, we just can't scale that. We have to figure out how to make this information as publicly available as possible, give people tools, help build people's capacity so that they can do it in the neighborhoods. A lot of people don't realize too that the police actually kill more people in suburban communities than almost all other communities combined. It's not cities. People think it's cities, it's not cities. Uh, cities is actually the only place that it's getting better. And that makes sense. Ferguson was the county. Brooklyn Center is a Mm -hmm. county. Kenosha, where Jacob Blake got shot, is the county. Uh, But the media is not in the county, right? The media is not paying attention to Brooklyn Center until uh, there is a national killing that's captured on TV.
0: Yeah, yeah. So this work, it seems, has made you optimistic about the power of people. When they, I
1: mean, I I, I think we can win in this lifetime. I've never wavered on that. I'm like, we can win in this lifetime, not a 700-year thing we can win. I am sober about it, though, that like, Winning is strategy, it is structure, uh, it is not speeches. That is what I am, that is what I'm <laughs> clear about. And I think that 2020 was a phenomenal example of like, we won the media war, we did. You couldn't escape the protests. And the the, the one outcome we chase got worse.
0: Hmm. Well, I want to thank you uh, for appearing and for our listeners on Equal Time. Boom, good to be here. So, what's keeping me up at night? The different reactions to the Chauvin verdict. Not the folks who think the former officer was justified in his response and that George Floyd got what he deserved. I don't think much about them. I don't want to have nightmares. I'm talking about the same people who thought the election of Barack Obama as president meant racism was over. Despite what the prosecution said, had to say in closing arguments, This was about a system, one that saw black and brown citizens killed by police even while the trial was in progress. Black Lives Matter was controversial the first time anyone said it out loud, and in too many ways it still is. I write about it in my latest roll call column. Check it out. And let me know what's on your mind by tweeting me at mcurtisnc3. Thank you for listening to Equal Time. Please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.